Amen. We're going to be in the book of Jeremiah today, so if you want to find that, um, as always, you're welcome to follow along in the app. If you've got a phone or tablet here, you can download the Oakwood app and all the sermon notes and scriptures are there for you. If you're old school and you've got a Bible like me, uh, find the book of Jeremiah chapter 29. If you didn't bring a Bible and you don't have a phone or you don't want to get on it, grab that Bible that's right there in front of you. Uh, one of those black Bibles that's there in the pew, and uh, turn to page 656, and you'll be right where we need to be this morning as we are going to read from the book of Jeremiah and understand um, who Jeremiah is. Let me give you a little bit of background into that. Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. Now, when I say the word prophet to you, if you've been around church circles for any amount of time, or maybe even outside of the church, but you've heard that word prophet before, that might stir in you some thoughts that might make you think of some things. When I was a kid and growing up and even into my teenage years, and I would venture even to say in my Bible college years, um, I was one of those that when I heard the word prophet, I thought fortune teller, right? It's like someone that predicts the future, right? The prophets, they always knew what was going on. And if you look at the prophets in, in, in the Bible, um, they always knew what was going to happen. They, could, they would tell God's people, hey, you know, you need to do this or do this because this is going to happen, now, there was a purpose to this. There was a purpose to this vision that they had from the Lord. And the purpose was that they were there, they existed to call God's people back to himself. That if they were giving uh, some kind of type of a message that was futuristic that said, hey, you need to turn from these ways and, and live this way or this is going to happen, the purpose of a prophet was to always call God's people to turn around back to him to repent and to turn and to change their direction in life, to change their mind, to turn back to God. And so I want you to think of that in the context of any time you, you uh, encounter a prophet in Scripture, that is their job, is they were given special knowledge. They were given special abilities from the Lord, but it was always to turn God's people back to him. And so that's the premise of who we're reading about today, uh, this prophet named Jeremiah, because what's happened here is the Israelites, God's chosen people, his closest people, the one that he's chosen to save, um, his people that, that roam the earth and are going to be a powerful example to the world for him, have now um, taken on idol worship and they've done some things that they shouldn't have. They've turned away from God. And we're going to read today a letter that uh, Jeremiah had actually uh, given. It was, it was penned through the Holy Spirit of God. God telling him what to say, and it was actually penned and sent to the Israelites while they're in exile after they had made some really poor, poor choices. So Jeremiah 29, beginning with verse 1, beginning with verse 1, it says this, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, okay? So give me a little background right there, okay? They're in Jerusalem. Uh, that's in Israel, God's holy city. They've been taken out. They've been sent into exile, and they're in Babylon now. Now, modern day, um, if you're like, where was Babylon? In modern day terms, that'd be um, in Iraq. And I was looking it up this week. It's actually 70 miles south and west of Baghdad. So um, if you can... Think about all of that, put that all into context. That's where God's people were at this time when they were sent in exile. Verse 2. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. So all those people, all those different groups that were going into exile, and it's naming a lot of their leaders and their workers here, when they were going into exile, um, that, that, that's this group that he just named. Now, something interesting in verse 2 for Bible thumpers maybe, um, that, that uh, King Jeconiah is also known, known as uh, King Jehoiakim. So there was a Jehoiakim 
And, and that was the father. And then Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is Jeconiah. It's the same king they're talking about there. It's just he's taken on a new name, a Babylonian name, as he's been taken into exile. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, let me tell you a little secret, a little side note, this little rabbit trail, okay? Anytime you're reading scripture and you get names like I just poured through, just act like you know how to pronounce them, okay? Just totally wing it. I mean, people are like, wow, he knew all those names. I don't know how to pronounce any of those names. I just read it, you know? So I'm not trying to fake you out, you know? But some people get really caught up on names. They're like, oh, I've got to look it up in the Bible dictionary to see how do you, how do you pronounce Jeconiah and Nebuchadnezzar and Hilkiah and Zedekiah and just add a Kaya to it and you're, you're good, Okay. But no, in all seriousness, it's, it's saying this is how this letter that Jeremiah had written actually got over to Babylon, to the people. So now we're at verse 4, and it says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts. If you're reading it in the King James, it would say, Thus saith the Lord of hosts. And then it says this, The God of Israel to all of the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now wait a minute, wait a minute. So God's people are not walking with the Lord, and the Babylonians come in, and they overtake them, and actually take them from Jerusalem, from their homeland, over to Babylon, and then we get to this verse of Scripture in verse 4, and God says to all the exiles whom I have sent. You see, there's something that we need to learn here. There's something that we need to learn is that God is sovereign over all things, God is still sovereign. God is still on the throne. This didn't surprise him. In fact, he's using this as his master plan to get the Israelites where he needs them to be spiritually. And you're, you're going to read in the rest of this passage in the next 14 verses and 15 verses we share together, you're going to read in here how many times God says that I have sent them to exile. This wasn't just some random thing. It wasn't like, wow, God's people got defeated again. No, God allowed his people to get defeated again. It was part of his master plan. So let's get back there. Whom I have sent in exile from Jerusalem, verse 5. And look what he instructs them to do in Babylon, okay? So they're, they're exiles in Babylon. Look what he tells them to do. Build houses and live in them. Do you build a house if you don't plan on staying somewhere for very long? No. Usually people are building houses like what? It's like, hey, I'm staying for a while. So, okay. So he's telling them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there in Babylon and do not decrease. Now, again, this is part of God's plan. God's like, I got a plan and I need to make sure that the nation of Israel, even though you're suppressed and depressed right now, is like, I still need you to have offspring because you are still the Israelites, you're still my chosen people, and I have a plan. And so don't decrease in population while you're in Babylon. I want you to actually increase, multiply there. Do not decrease. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, there it is again, where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So in other words, while you're in Babylon, you're going to experience what happens to Babylon. So you better be praying for your city, because its welfare is dependent on your welfare. Verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let, notice what it says here, the wording. It says, do not let your prophets, not God's prophets, do not let your prophets and your diviners, those are like fortune tellers and people that practice sorcery and magic, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. 
For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So it's like, let me clean up some stuff for you. I know there's some people are saying God's plan is this or God's plan is that or God told me this and he's saying, I didn't send those people. Jeremiah is my prophet. And so you need to listen to him. You need to not listen to your prophets that you choose and your diviners that you choose. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed, for Babylon. 70 years is how long they're going to be in exile. And because God's large and powerful and in charge and overall, that's the way it's going to be. 70 years. You think about that. Think about your age today, and I want you to picture yourself 70 years from now. Oh, yeah, somebody, somebody over here is like, oh, <laughs> sorry, you're already feeling it, huh? Can you imagine yourself 70 years? I'll, probably many of us in here would be gone, right? hopefully you've made a decision for Christ and you've lived for him and you have that promise of eternal life in heaven. And I tell you, my philosophy on that is you shouldn't spend a minute more in this world than you have to if you know that heaven is waiting for you, that you can actually go and be with God the Father. So so that's, that's a good thing. But what's interesting is if you think about seven years from now, most of us in this room won't be here. And I want you to, to pay attention to what God's doing here. God is literally killing off a generation of Israelites. They got into idol worship. They started singing against God that wasn't paying attention to the prophets anymore. It wasn't listening to God's instruction who had taken God's holy word and all of his commands and it kind of said, hey, I'm, we're going to do it my way. I'm not going to follow God's way anymore. And this was the end result. And through that 70 years, some Bible scholars believe that two generations were going to be killed off. And so when they come out of exile and back to Jerusalem, guess what? It's a whole new leadership in place because they were not following the Lord. They did not turn back to him. So it says there, 70 years, verse 10, thus said the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise. Now that promise he's talking about goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where it was Abraham and it was through Abraham's lineage that they were going to be a nation, they were going to be a people, they were going to be God's chosen people, that God was going to walk with them, that they were going to be blessed, that they were going to have a homeland. All of those promises that God had given them way back in Genesis chapter 12, God says, hey, I'm good with my promises. And they'd happen a lot faster if you guys just would follow my ways. But you didn't, so okay, have some exile time. Have a time out, 70 years. But when you come back out of that, I will fulfill my promise because that's who God is. And I will bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem, back to the holy city. Now listen to what he says here. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Verse 12. Then, cause and effect word, right? Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. Notice he, he says there, there's three things they're gonna, you're going to call, they're going to come, and they're going to pray. And it says, and I will hear you. When you call, come, and pray, I'm going to hear you. He says, then you will call, come, and pray to me, and I will hear you. Look what it says in verse 13. Because this is the key, this is the linchpin for all of it. It says, you will seek me. And you will find me when, when what, Lord? When you seek me with all your heart. Didn't we just talk about this last week? Didn't we just talk about this? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight or he will direct your paths. 
We just talked about that last week. Here it is again. All throughout Scripture, we see that if we're going to be a follower of Jesus and we're going to be a true Christian, like a real Christian, like the type of Christian that God in heaven would look down and say, that is my son, that is my daughter, that is my child. They are walking in my ways. That is a Christian. That is a saved one. That those people are all in. You'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. No hard, half-hearted following of Jesus. Verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And he's going to do what? This is awesome. And I will restore. That's the business that God's in. He's in the restoration project. All those HGTV shows you like of reclaimed wood. That's what God does. He takes reclaimed lives and makes them all awesome again, makes them, makes them something that's useful, makes them something that's beautiful again. And he says, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations that you've been scattered to, all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I set you into exile. God says, hey, I got plans for you guys. I know you're having a 70-year time out here and it's going to be hard, but I've got plans, and I'm good on my promises. And so hunker down, but follow me. Choose to follow me, verse 15. Because you have said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, talking about Jerusalem now, your kinsmen who did not go with you into exile, so some of them were left behind. A lot of times what the Babylonians would do is they would take people into exile, but they only wanted the best and the brightest and the greatest and the ones that would be helpful to their kingdom. And if you were like, you know, somebody that was uneducated or, or somebody that was really, really poor, they just felt like there's no use for you. They would just leave you behind. They would leave a, a, a remnant of people behind. The Babylonians would, you know, still be running things in Jerusalem, but you weren't going to Babylon with the leaders and the king and, and with everybody else. And so it says, because of that, because the Lord has raised up prophets of Babylon, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne, concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen, who did not go into exile, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I am sending on them, the ones that were left behind, sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them a whore to all of the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a tear, a hissing, and a reproach amongst all the nations where I have driven them. Pause there for a second, because that hissing word kind of made me laugh when I read it. It's like, so they're going to go, Adam? You know, but when I studied the word and actually got the concept from Hebrew, this was originally written in Hebrew, when you, when you got it, it's like when you see something and it's so abhorrent, you don't know what to say, and you just kind of go, <sighs> and that's the hissing that it's talking about. That they're going to see the people of God left behind in Jerusalem suffering so much with sword and famine and pestilence that they're going to walk by and go, whoa, I don't have words, it's just, whoa, and that's what that hissing that's what that hissing means. They're going to be in reproach. Verse 19. Why are they going to be in reproach? Why are they going to be driven out? It says, because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. Now, we like, in our version of Christianity today, we like to think God's commands don't matter. You know, God's commands don't matter. There's enough grace to cover that. But we need to understand that God's commands do matter. 
And that when we don't obey God's commands, it's called sin, and sin means missing the mark. And the mark of the believer is to follow the ways of God and to follow the, the, the laws of God and to follow the ways of Jesus. Now, there's a couple things I want us to understand here. And the first one is this. Our bad choices, okay, our, our sin, our bad choices may have hard consequences, but God is still sovereign over the lives of his children. Okay, you see this all throughout this passage, okay? How many times in there did, it, did God say that I sent you into exile? Look at the end of verse 14. He's, what, does he, what does he end it with there? Which I sent you into exile. God says, I'm sending you into exile. Don't think that the Babylonians defeated God's holy people because God's people weren't strong enough because God's not strong enough. No, I let them take you over. I let them send you into exile. And I've allowed the 70 years of suffering here because you were not obeying my ways. You were not walking with me. And this was the only way to get your attention. This was the only way that God saw that he could do it. And he said, this is my plan. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna work this plan exactly the way I want to. It's gonna be my way. Sometimes we make these bad, sinful choices against God, and sometimes they have hard consequences. It doesn't matter. God is sovereign over all things. He can work through everything that happens in our life. But here's another truth that we need to understand this morning. Sin, talking about missing the mark, not living up to God's standard. Sin will always wreak havoc on your life, always. There is no good sin. Sometimes we're like, oh, this sin's better than that sin, or this one's way up here and this one's down there. With God, sin is sin. If you miss the mark, you miss the mark. There's no, well, hey, this one is better than that one, okay? So there's no good sin. Sin will always wreak havoc in your life. There's no good sin. The truth is, if you let sin dominate you, you are turned against God. That's what we're talking about the rest of our time this morning. If you let sin dominate you, then you're turned against God, and you may not even realize it. That's the scary thing, but that's the way the devil works. It's like, you know, just baby steps in a bad direction, Baby steps for a few weeks, turns into a few months, a few years, and you're way out in left field now. You're like, what in the world did I do? What a wretch of a person I am. What happened here? It's the devil tempted you, and you gave into that temptation. You believed the lie, and you walked that direction. And you're, you find out that you're feeling very, very far away from God. But there's a difference, and that's what I want to draw a distinction with this morning. There's a difference between sin and habitual sin. And this is something that we don't talk about a lot of times, and, and I want to be clear on this this morning, is that we are all sinners, okay? Every one of us in this room has sin. If you're like, oh, I haven't sinned, you know, and you raise your hand, you're a liar, and so you're a sinner right there on the spot. So you already ruined it, okay? So the, the deal is, is that we are all sinners saved by grace, and we all sin. But when we come to Jesus Christ, the scripture says that he saves us not only for heaven and for salvation and for eternal life, it says that he saves us from sin, that the pattern of sinfulness in our life would be there no longer and that we'd be walking in his will and walking in his ways even more each and every day now let me share a couple of scriptures that talk about this specifically um, because there's no better way to say this than directly from scripture so Romans chapter 8 verses 5 through 8 it's going to be here on the screens for you Romans chapter 8 verses 5 through 8 and pay attention to what it says here I want you to notice the underlining on there is not in the Bible okay that is just stuff I've highlighted or underlined in my Bible and I wanted them to put it on the screen for emphasis sake so straight from the Bible but the underlined part is is the ESV the Eric Standard Version okay this is what it says. For those who live according to the flesh, live like daily, like live in it, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, that flesh is talking about sin, our sinful nature. 
Okay, that we're, that we're born into the sinful nature. We have this tendency that we're born with, even as small children, is to sin. Has anyone experienced a three-year-old just learning to talk sinning, right? It's when they tell you no, right, parents? Everybody remembers that moment of what? <laughs> they were sinless. They were doing so good. And now they told me no. Or they told me to shut up. Or they told me to, you know, whatever. And you're like, hey, I'm raising a little sinner here. It's like, yes, we're all, we're all that way. And it says, for those who live according to the flesh, so their mind is on the things of the flesh. And then it says in the next part, it says, but those who live according to the Spirit, with a capital S, talking about the Holy Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So those who live according to the flesh are thinking about the flesh all the time. Those who are walking according to the Spirit, they have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. It's talking about a spiritual death. It's like dying on the inside. Your soul and your heart just dying. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. That's what everybody's after, right? Everybody was like, man, I want life. I want really life, life that is truly life, like Scripture talks about. I want some peace in my life. And it says, if you set your mind on the spirit, then you have life in peace. Then look what it says next. It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. How many of you want to be hostile to God? Guess what? No one wants to be hostile to God, but it says here that if you have your mind set on the flesh, that you are hostile to God. Look what it says next. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. In other words, you cannot obey God's law outside of the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. And if you're walking through life right now and your mind is set on the flesh and only on the here and now and only on the earthly things, then he's saying here, watch out. Because you're living hostile to God, whether you realize it or not. And then it says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Can we try to please God? No, you cannot please God if you're set on the flesh. That's the Apostle Paul writing to the, the, the church and, and, and the Christians in Rome. Now, I want to turn to another passage from another apostle, and it's found in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, again, this is going to be on the screen for you. And again, all the underlining in it is my underlining in it. 1 John 3, 5 through 10 says this. You know, this is talking about Jesus, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. There it is, folks. He appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, in Christ Jesus, there is no sin. Now look what it says here. No one who abides. That word abides gives us this idea of staying in something. If you're abiding in something, you're staying in it, you're staying with it all the time. No one who abides in him, talking about Jesus Christ, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now, notice it doesn't say, oh, they never sinned. It doesn't say, oh, they're sinless forevermore. No, it says they don't keep on. It gives us the idea of the habitual sin pattern, that we're caught in this sinful pattern. It's not just the one-time foul up, oh, I said a word I shouldn't have, Oh, I shouldn't have looked there. I had the lustful thought. Oh, I, I shouldn't have done this or done that. It's not the one-time slip-up that he's talking about here. He says that no one who abides in him can keep on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And then he says, little children, let no one deceive you. I struggled with this in Bible college. 
And it, this was a, a great struggle of mine because when I was in Bible college, you know, think about a guy going to Bible college, okay? I've graduated high school. I'm, I'm pursuing Bible college. I'm in classes like Romans and Life of Christ and uh, Bib Theo, Biblical Theology. I'm in all these classes learning all about this book and, and, and walking in the ways of God so I can minister to people someday. That was my, my calling. I felt like God wanted me to, to be a minister full-time, give, give my life to the vocation of ministry in God's church somewhere, okay? And so moving that direction, when you have sinfulness in your life, it's really, it's really something that bothers you. For me, it was a thought thing. I, I just had, had bad thoughts and, and nasty thoughts, and, and I was sitting there, and I remember one time falling under this deep conviction because it had become a habitual problem for me. It wasn't just a one-time thing. It was starting to become an everyday type of thing. And I remember as we're going through this, uh, in reading scriptures like this, I'm like, wait a second, if I abide in Christ, it says I cannot keep on sinning. And I came to this moment, I'll never forget it, it was my uh, sophomore year, first semester of the sophomore year of Bible college. I came to this moment of just personal conviction. I actually had had a Bible college professor say something to me about my attitude. I had this uh, thing happen with a, with a professor. And, and I, I just, I was at this crossroads and I, and I remember reading uh, either this scripture, Romans, one of these passages, and just falling under this conviction that if you are a new creation, like 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Eric, and you are walking with Christ and you're going to be a minister of the gospel and you're going to be a person that is going to preach the word of God, that you can't just like learn this and then just keep walking a separate different way, that you actually have to live this. And that the reason that you can't live with yourself and you don't want to look in the mirror right now is because you are falling under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you're supposed to leave that life and go this way in life. And you're supposed to leave your life of sin because Jesus saved you from sin. You're not going to walk in it any longer. You remember Romans 6? Apostle Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Hey, more sins, more grace, right? And then he says, by no means. Because we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And I remember having this visual of Jesus being nailed to the cross and suffering a torturous, bloody, humiliating death for my sin and saying, I'm not walking in this any longer. I'm leaving this life. Of, that I, mm -mm, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it any longer. I can't. And some of you are, are, are in the middle of that right now. You're in the middle of that tension and that struggle with your heart. And I want you to hear from the word of God that says, hey, if you abide in Christ Jesus, you can't keep on sinning. Praise the Lord. You're going to walk out of that life of sin and walk in grace and in peace in a life that is truly life. And look what it says there next. Whoever makes a, it says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice, again, it's not just a one-time foul up, oh, I messed up. It is a habitual sin pattern. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is what? Wow. Is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. I like that kind of rhyme, sinning from the beginning. <laughs> the devil sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. And I would add there to your life, the work of the devil that he's wanting to do in all of our lives. Jesus appeared. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. No one born of God, no one who's the new creation in Christ Jesus, the old has gone, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God, and he's a new creation, he's a new creature, and he's leaving that life of sin, and he's moving God's direction 
By this it is evident who are the children of God. What's the evidence of those who are children of God? The absence of sin. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see, we are called to be a new creation, and some of you, you find that you're in the struggle right now. Just, just admit it. Just say, you know what? It's because I'm not walking in the newness of life that has been given me in Christ Jesus. I can be an overcomer, but I've got to do it through the power of Jesus and through the relationship that I have with God. Because here's another truth this morning. God can redeem anything if we turn to him wholeheartedly. God can redeem anything. If you're sitting here this morning like, man, I, I am so far from God. I'm so in a habitual sin pattern. I don't know if I can take it anymore. I, I don't know that God can love me. I don't know that he'll ever accept me. You do not know what I'm into. If I told you everyone in the church would hate me and they'd probably just excommunicate me, I'd be out of here. I mean, you just don't know God can redeem that. I'm telling you, God can redeem anything. But our job is that we have to turn to him wholeheartedly. You got to turn and you got to run to him. You got to make that turn in your life. That's what Jeremiah was telling the nation of Israel here, is that there's going to come a turning point where you're going to turn to me and you're going to seek me and you're going to find me and you're going to come to me and you're going to pray to me and I will hear you. And you'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I don't have all of your heart if you're in a habitual sin pattern. The devil has some of your heart. And so I want all of your heart. And we need to walk in the ways of the Lord. And here's the truth this morning. I want to end with this. Restoration after rebellion requires repentance. If you want to be restored, the restoration that takes place after rebellion, after sinning against God, it requires repentance. Look what this scripture says, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. It says, Godly sorrow brings repentance, which leads to salvation, which leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. When I was a kid, and we came to the time of invitation in the service, um, what we did back then is we had everybody come forward. And that's why no one ever sat this close to the front, you know, it's because people would sit up, they come up to the front and come up on the front rows. And I remember it was a very emotional time in church because when they came up and they sat on these front rows, in fact, there's Kleenex boxes up here. When they came and sat on the front rows, a lot of times people would be very emotional and they would cry. And I thought, man, that's what this is about. Shame on you for your sin. You feel guilty. You feel sorrow. Man, I'm sorry about what I did. I'm sorry for the mess of my life. Man, what a wretch of a person I am. And we come up and we cry. But in Scripture, that's not what God actually asks of us, is to cry and feel sorry for our sin. I think it's a good first step. <laughs> I think it says right there in, in 2 Corinthians 7.10, the godly sorrow what? Godly sorrow, godly sorrow. A true depth of sorrow for your sin leads to repentance. It brings about repentance, which leads to salvation, which leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, it brings death. Why? Because there's no regeneration. There's, there's no newness of life. There's no change. 
we can all feel sorry about our sin, but repentance is something completely different. See, that's what I thought repentance was. Repentance is coming forward and crying and feeling really bad about your sins. That's not what it means. That word repent in scripture actually means to change your mind. It means literally to turn a direction. So it's like if you're going this way and you repent, you say, Eric, repent, then you would go this way. That's the illustration. That's what that, what that word means actually in the Greek in the New Testament. It means literally change your mind's direction. That's what God has called us to. Not to feel sorry for our sins, but to change our mind's direction. Because what? Because that leads to salvation. That leads to what I call lordship salvation. Where God's just not my friend and my savior. He's my lord. He's my boss. He's my master. He's my, the, the word in scripture is my curios which means the master of one who has slaves working for him. We become slaves of Jesus Christ. Not because we have to and not because he's arrested us or changed, changed us. We do it because we love the master and we love the way that he treats us. And that's the call this morning. It's the call to repent, to follow a new master. Because whether you believe it or not, you're following a master right now. We're all following a master. Just is that master that you're following Jesus Christ? Or have you been following the master of the world? And God calls us to repent. And that's what we're going to offer you this morning. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. And it's called Come to the Altar. Great song. Don't just stand this morning and go through the motions of the invitation. I want you to really take to heart the words that you're singing here in, the, in this song. But it says, come to the altar. And really what it's a call is come to God, come to Jesus. His arms are open wide to love you and accept you. You are his child and he wants you back, but you have to change. You have to change your mind's direction and repent and turn to him. Literally, change your mind and go God's way this morning. And so we're gonna invite you to do two things. While this song is playing, if you want to just have a moment alone with God and you wanna come up here to the front row and sit, on one of these pews, if you want to come up and kneel on the stage, this is open. This is just an open time. It's not trying to be weird or pseudo-spiritual or something. But if you feel like God's calling you, you just need some knee time, come to the foot of the cross and just get on your knees and cry out to the Lord, come do it. As every week, the invitation room over there on the side is open. We're going to have decision guides, elders, people that will pray with you, talk to you about your relationship with God. If, if you want to make a first-time decision for Christ, you're like, but I don't know what to do, then come over here. If someone, someone there is waiting. But let's repent. Let's get real. Let's not stay in a sinful pattern. If you find yourself there this morning, I want you to feel the hope of the newness of life that God has to offer you. But it's only found through the grace of Jesus Christ. But if you're one of those like me, where, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I've made that decision, but I have not been walking with God to the point that, yeah, it's not just a whoops sin anymore. It's a daily sin. Repent. Turn away from it. And come back to God. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you love us so much that you give us grace. God, I thank you for the scripture, the holy word of the Bible that instructs us in all of these things. Lord, I thank you for the story from Jeremiah. The prophet, Jeremiah 29, I mean, who'd have thought how that could speak to our hearts and our lives today? And yet we see the nation of Israel, and we see, God, that you use the exile, you use the time out 
for a purpose, to bring them back to you, but you tell them that they're going to turn to you and come to you and pray to you, and they're going to seek you and find you when they seek you with all of their heart. God, that's what we're struggling with this morning. Some of us are like, hey, we're part of our heart. God, we know you want all of it. We know if we only give you part that we've chosen another master. God, to picture Jesus on the cross, being nailed on the cross and tortured and, and died in the way that he did should be a motivation enough of that sacrificial love of you to get us to turn toward you. So God, in these next few minutes as we sing this song, do your work. Do your work once again in us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.